Say When Things Get Tough, a podcast dedicated to helping you communicate more effectively in difficult situations, both personal and professional. I'm your host, Leonard S. Greenberger. Today we're going to continue our series of episodes on traps that you can fall into when communicating in difficult situations where people are angry, worried, and suspicious of everything you said. This is our third installment, and we're going to talk about four traps today. The first I'm going to call the money trap. And simply put, the money trap involves placing a price tag on some kind of risk. If people that you're communicating with believe that you're imposing some sort of a risk on them, it can be a physical risk, it can be a financial risk, it can be an emotional or psychological burden, they don't care how much it's going to cost to eliminate it. And that's particularly true if they feel you're imposing some sort of physical risk on them. If it's going to take a billion dollars to make sure that a landfill that a company wants to build in your community isn't going to leak, they'll want you to spend that $1 billion. If it's going to take $100 billion, they want you to spend $100 billion. Now, taking it down a little to more of a one-on-one basis, if you have to lay someone off, let's say, for economic reasons, it's important that you don't dwell on that aspect of the decision and very definitely don't talk about how much money the organization is going to save by letting this employee go. That's not what this employee is thinking about. That's not what this employee cares about. Discussing the role that money plays in making decisions often makes people feel cheap and undervalued. And it plays into the assumption, which is always present, but even more pronounced in tough situations, that people in positions of authority really only care about the bottom line. There was one time in my career about 10 years ago that I slipped partway into this trap myself. The firm that I worked for at the time was a member of an organization uh, that fell on difficult times. The the Great Recession that hit in 2008 and 9 really took its toll, and by 2012, this organization was losing members and running out of money. Another member of the executive committee and I had to have a very difficult conversation with the group's executive director, which was the group's only employee. We were not sure that the group was going to make it, and we needed to discuss our options. And we started off by talking about the budget, accounts receivable, other fiscal aspects of the organization and where it stood, but we realized very quickly that the executive director was not paying attention to what we were saying uh, because her thoughts were about her own job. Uh, She didn't want to hear about money or finances. She was worried about whether or not she was going to be employed. And she was thinking quite understandably with that emotional part of her brain. So we switched gears, and instead of talking about the figures and numbers first, we talked about our top priority was making sure that she was going to be okay. That even if the organization didn't make it, that we were going to do everything we could to make sure that she would get a nice severance package, that we would do everything we could to help her find new employment, and that our focus was mostly on making sure that she was going to come out of this okay, even if the organization didn't survive. And once we backed up out of that money trap that we almost fell into and applied a little caring and empathy, the conversation went much more smoothly. Fortunately, that organization did not survive. Some outcomes are beyond even the power of the strategies, skills, and techniques contained in this book. But uh, the employee, our executive director, did go on to find a great new job And in the end, everybody turned out to be just fine. Now let's talk a little bit about what I call the numbers trap. Like the dishonesty and deception trap that we talked about in the last episode, the numbers trap is one that you are not going to be able to escape once you get caught. 
And this trap typically comes into play in tough situations that involve public health concerns. Uh, we've talked several times over the course of this podcast about the power plant executive who had to go and explain to his community why a nuclear power plant that his company owned had leaked some radioactive water into a local lake. Government agencies and scientists tend to talk about public health risks in terms of one out of how many. For example, if a train carrying toxic chemicals derails in this community, how many people out of the entire population will be hurt? Is it one in a thousand? Is it one in 10,000? Let me give you an example of how this trap can be set. Let's go back to a scenario we talked about in an earlier episode where one of my clients was testifying before Congress regarding a salmonella outbreak that his company was not responsible for, uh, but which um, his company was involved in. And let me point out that the exchange I'm going to give you now did not actually take place. It's made up, just to give you a sense of what might have happened. A member of Congress may have asked something like this. So this outbreak was contained geographically, but let's say we have a nationwide outbreak someday of salmonella. What are the chances that someone in my district could die as a result? Now, it would be very easy for my client to have responded by saying something like, oh, I don't know, it's one in a million. And then the member of Congress would say, one in a million, huh? Well, so there are more than 300 million people in this country. Is that right? My client would probably say, yes, that's right. And then the member of Congress would say, so if I do a little simple math, and assuming you're right about the chances that someone would be killed, that means we can expect 300 people to die during a nationwide salmonella outbreak. And at that point, my client would be stuck. The member could ask if that was acceptable to you, which 300 people are you going to choose to kill? Is anybody here today in this room willing to volunteer to be one of the people who dies in a salmonella outbreak? It could go a whole lot of very, very bad ways. To avoid this trap, the best way is to not talk about the one out of how many hypothetical situation. And again, to use what we've talked about in the past, bridges to move from the question that's being asked to a more appropriate and effective response. So, if the member of Congress were to ask that same question, this outbreak was contained geographically, but let's say we have a nationwide outbreak someday, what are the chances that someone in my district could die as a result? My client may have said something like, you've raised a hypothetical question, and I can understand why you'd ask, but I prefer to deal with what we know and what we can prove, and then move into a discussion of what actually happened uh, and why. So as you can see from this example, the best way to deal with traps is to simply avoid them, to see them coming, to anticipate them, and to step over or around them so that you don't get caught. The next trap that I like to talk about is called the risk comparison trap. In several earlier episodes, we learned that risk perceptions are influenced by numerous factors that often conspire to turn big risks into non-existent threats in our minds and very small risks into imminent dangers. Things like familiarity, things like benefits, things like whether or not we trust the source of the risk. And we've talked in the past about how something like driving, which is actually an extremely dangerous activity in which most of us engage on a daily basis, becomes an infinitesimal risk in our minds. Whereas something like shark attack shows up on the list of Americans' top 10 fears every year, even though your chances of being attacked by a shark, even if you go in the ocean every day, are so small as to be something not worth thinking about 
at all. So that makes the use of risk comparisons a dicey proposition because it's very difficult for us to be sure what the audience we're communicating with perceives to be risky. Over the years, I've dealt with a lot of clients who are eager to compare whatever risk that their activity is imposing on people with an obvious danger like smoking or driving. Go back again to the example I've used several times of the company that wanted to build a new landfill in a local community. The client I worked with there said, you know, most of the people who come to these meetings to talk about how upset they are about us building this facility because they worry it's going to be dangerous, most of them smoke. Can't I point out that the danger from our facility is so much lower than the danger from the cigarettes that you're smoking every day? You shouldn't even worry about this. If you're worried about your own health, don't worry about the fact that we're going to be building this facility here. We're, try to stop smoking. That's going to make you much healthier. When we begin to work with clients, they often don't understand why people would protest and resist something like that when they engage in other much more dangerous behavior on their own. And again, it's the factors that we discussed that influence risk that change the perception of risk in people's minds. So risk comparisons work much the same weight as credibility does. We've also talked about how you can borrow credibility from somebody who has more of it in order to raise your own credibility. But if you try to borrow credibility from somebody who has less than you, it's going to pull you down to their level. In difficult situations, and in normal ones too, it works to your advantage to borrow credibility from someone who has more than you. But you have to be careful. If the source from whom you're borrowing turns out to have less credibility, than your own will fall along with your code score. And that's the way risk comparison works also. It's only successful when you compare the risk you're imposing on others with a risk they perceive to be greater, as well as one that they believe to be similar. For instance, you might compare driving with riding on a train, but definitely not nuclear power with eating peanut butter, which, believe it or not, people in my firm have seen some nuclear engineers try to do. In fact, there was one public meeting where one of the executives we were working with attempted to answer a woman's question about the dangers of the facility that they were trying to build in their community with the peanut butter sandwiches that she gives her children every morning to take to school for lunch. And the engineer tried to explain that the chances of her child being hurt or even killed by a peanut allergy was way higher than any chance that he would be hurt or killed by activities at the facility they were trying to build. Her reaction was to physically attack that engineer. She had to be restrained because basically what he had just accused her of was trying to harm her own child. Now that's an extreme example, but that's the way this works. We have to remember that all of the factors that influence risk, control, understanding, benefits, fairness, equity, all of the other things we've talked about, just because something is actually more dangerous than something else does not mean that people perceive it that way. And toxicity also plays a role. We've talked about that. Rat poison is way more dangerous than plutonium because almost no one will ever be exposed to plutonium. But don't try telling that to the general public. You'll do a lot more harm than good. And telling somebody that the landfill you want to build in their community puts them at less risk than their drive to work every morning will fail too. I've seen people try that. Because the vast majority of people perceive very little, if any, risk associating with driving. And because living near a landfill and driving are not similar activities. 
Here, the notion of whether or not something is voluntary really comes into play. I choose to get into my car and drive. You're forcing this landfill on me. I don't want it. And when you compare driving to building a landfill, you've just compared the risk that you're imposing on them to one they perceive to be much lower, which tends to magnify your risk and make their own scarier at the same time. They'll fight the landfill even harder, and they might worry a little bit more on their way home, too, about the risk involved in driving. Now, there are some experts that have found that the use of risk comparisons can help to put risks in perspective for people when they're angry, worried, and suspicious. There are things called risk ladders and first-rank and second-rank comparisons ordered by desirability. These are all in the risk communication literature. And while these concepts are based on sound science, they're complex and they are difficult to employ without a great deal of skill and practice. And I counsel clients simply not to use risk comparisons. The best way to avoid this trap is simply not to set it. It's not necessary, and the chances are very high that you'll do more harm than good. If someone specifically asks you to compare risks, use a bridge with a little caring and empathy thrown in for good measure. And I'll close this trap discussion with an example. Let's say you get the following question. Help me put this into perspective. How does the risk involved with what you're trying to do here compare with, say, the risk of contracting cancer from smoking? Here's a good way to respond to that question. I can appreciate that you'd like a little perspective on this. I know I would if I were in your same situation. And in fact, my wife asked me exactly the same question the other day. And rather than trying to compare this risk with others, particularly one like smoking and cancer, which is so dangerous and involves so many variables, I think it's more helpful to look at what we're talking about in the following way. And that provides you a bridge where you can then talk about the benefits that your facility will provide, all of the safety measures you're going to take to make sure that people who live near this facility remain safe and so on. And the last trap we're going to talk about in this episode is called the false premise trap. Sometimes someone you're trying to communicate with in a difficult situation will try to make an argument based on a false premise. And here again, I'll use the example of the utility executive whose power, nuclear power plant leaked radioactive water into a local lake. Now, we anticipated people who came to this community meeting to talk to him about this event would assume that, the, that what the power plant had leaked into the lake would be toxic and dangerous. And we particularly rehearsed how to respond to a question like, since the stuff you leaked in the lake is so dangerous, will you pay for people's medical bills when they get sick? This is a good example of a question that's based on a false premise, the false premise being that anyone is going to get sick from being exposed to this minimal amount of radioactive water in the lake. Now, our client's instinct might have been to say something like, the leak is not dangerous and you won't get sick and there's no point in talking about medical bills. But that breaks too many of our rules. It's not very caring and empathetic. It includes a lot of negatives. It repeats the allegation. And so when we worked with our client to prepare for a question like that, which actually did not come up in this meeting, he was prepared to say something like this. I appreciate that question. I'm sure many other people here tonight are wondering the very same thing. Let's step back for a minute. As I said, the leak was very small and we have been unable to detect any traces of it since the moments after it happened. You and your family are perfectly safe. My family and I are perfectly safe. We can swim and fish in the lake without any concern. So medical bills just won't be an issue. Now, there's another form of the false premise trap that involves what I call a forced alternative, where somebody might ask something like, isn't it best just to shut the plant down completely so we can be sure this will never happen again? Or shouldn't we ban swimming and fishing in the lake just to be sure? Their best response to questions like these is something like this. I hear what you're saying, 
and I too want to make sure everyone is safe. As I've said, my family lives here, my kids, my grandkids often swim in the lake, but the actions that you've suggested are unnecessary and your family is safe. The lake was small, undetectable, and people should feel free to enjoy the lake as they always have. In either case, the way out of the trap is the same. Express caring and empathy, deny the false premise or forced alternative in a positive way, and bridge to one of your messages. And so we'll stop here today in this episode after talking about four new traps that you might fall into, the money trap, the numbers trap, the risk comparison trap, and the false premise trap. In our next episode, we're going to talk about what is probably the most common trap of all, and that is the use of too much technical jargon when talking to people in difficult situations. And we'll see you then. Thank you, as always, to Jim Cirillo of jimmyamgroup.com for our original music. Thank you to my daughter, Rachel Greenberger, for original podcast art. Please send questions to WTSWTGT at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at hashtag WTSWTGT. Until next time, always be positive.